you are new with us at Grace Covenant. We began a study of this uh, tremendous letter uh, back uh, last uh, September, uh, a little over a year ago, uh, taking a break in the summertime since people are traveling and, uh, and uh, it just becomes uh, inconsistent that way. And we, we picked up again last week at Hebrews 10, chapter, uh, Hebrews, Hebrews 10 uh, verse 1, uh, reading through 18. Today we pick up in verse 19, and what is perhaps uh, not um, necessarily as, as evident to many people, unless you are uh, a, a thorough student of the Bible, is that we actually come to a, a transition point here at this, uh, this point in the passage, uh, this point in this letter. As uh, commentator Simon Kistemacher, who was one of my seminary professors, said, I'll, I'll paraphrase him, uh, he said that up to this point, the writer has been very heavy in instruction and very relatively light in application. Uh, from this point on, from Hebrews 10, 19 through the rest of this book, he's heavy in application and comparatively light in the instruction. And what we're going to find from not only today, but through the rest of the letter is that there, all of the things that he has built, the foundation that has already been built, now he's going to say, here's how we are to live our lives. And the instruction that we see today and the instruction that we'll see throughout the rest of uh, this series uh, is uh, simply pointing back to the foundation, either to the different themes or sometimes a summary of the different themes, uh, so that we are reminded uh, about the foundation upon which our life as Christians uh, is built. Uh, this morning we read again, uh, Hebrews 10, verse 19 through verse 25. Hear the word of our God. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near the word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come this morning, we do pray that you would speak to us by this word that you have given to us. For your word is not empty. Your word not only reminds us of, uh, tells us of who you are uh, and reminds us of who we are. Uh, your word is powerful and it actually forms us even as it informs us. And so I pray, Lord, that you by your spirit would open our minds that we may have an ability to grasp what you teach that we would open our hearts, that we would be willing to receive and be transformed, and that you would continue the work that you began and those who believe that they would be transformed, all of us would be transformed more and more to be like Christ, built up together and to his glory. So Lord, we cling to the promise that you have made and pray that you would be at work within us, even as we consider this word this morning. To you be all praise and glory in your church and throughout the world. We pray in Christ, who is the word incarnated. Amen. Not long ago, I was killing some time and found myself uh, somewhat fascinated by a, um, uh, I guess, a, a documentary on the History Channel of the Panama Canal. And so prompted by that, I began over the past uh, several months uh, reading uh, different articles I could find here and there about the, the making of the Panama Canal. I've never been there, but it, it just seems to be a fascinating place. 
And one of the things that I, I learned was that the, the Panama Canal is considered to be one of the, the seventh wonder of the modern world. When it opened in, in 1914, it was regarded as an amazing engineering feat, something that hadn't been done at any time before. It took 10 years for the canal to be completed. It had been in the plans for a long, long time. In fact, they said that historians say that as early as the 16th century, uh, people thought it would be much better to be able to go through this short isthmus than to go all the way down around South America and the, the dangerous Strait of Magellan and then back all the way up in order to get from the Atlantic to the Pacific or the Pacific to the Atlantic. Not only was it long, but it's a dangerous trip, and many people have been shipwrecked and destroyed through the stormy and unpredictable Strait of Magellan. And so there had always been this plan, and, but they had never come to fruition. There'd been a few attempts that got started, but they came to nothing until early in the early 20th century uh, when engineers decided that they were going to cut a path through this uh, dense jungle, mountainous uh, area, a 50-mile path that would create a, a new way uh, from Atlantic to the Pacific and the Pacific to the Atlantic. But as amazing as it is that while the Panama Canal created a new way, the writer of the book of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ himself has created a new way, a new and living way. That's what our passage says as, as we begin reading it, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. And so he's saying that Jesus Christ is a new and living way by which we are able to access heaven, to access God, and to live our lives. And Jesus is a new way, uh, not because uh, he is a new way of salvation. Salvation always has been, uh, by God's grace, through faith in the promise of the spotless lamb that would come. But Jesus is the new way in that he has um, replaced the, the religious rituals and sacrifices that were part of the old covenant and every religion that is known, and the, the new way of engaging God into experiencing God's grace is not through our efforts, but through our believing and repenting and believing and repenting and trusting that God has provided that way in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what the passage tells us here. He's the, the new way that is created um, that, that we are able to uh, do in living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. And so in other words, it's saying that the, the new way is the person of Jesus Christ. God's provision, our believing in him creates the new way. And, and, and the language here is talking about that it's through the curtain and, and that he has assumed that. And uh, he's talking about there, the writer's talking about there is, is alluding back to the, uh, the pattern of Old Testament worship and the Old Covenant worship, uh, where there was a curtain that hung that uh, separated the holy places in the temple and in the tabernacle and the most holy place, or the holy of holy places. Uh, no one was able to go beyond that curtain except for the high priest, and he was only able to go once per year. He would go in on Yom Kippur in order to offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people by which, if the sacrifice is accepted, the, the sins were covered. Kind of the, the stuff that we looked at last week in the first part of Hebrews chapter 10. 
But the reference to the curtain also is a, a reminder that it, uh, the Gospels tell us that at, at the moment that Jesus died, the curtain was torn in two. And as one commentator has noted, it wasn't torn from bottom to top, as if, you know, man got tired of this religious stuff, and so we just started tearing because we you know, can only reach what we can reach and then tear, and then with the force that it would bring a tear, and the whole curtain was torn. It was torn from top to bottom, signifying that it was God who did the tearing. God had tore, uh, tore the curtain up and giving access to everybody. Another commentator commented this, and it's very important that we recognize that God didn't just roll up the scroll so that we would have access, but that he could bring it back later if this, this new way of grace wasn't working very well. He tore it into pieces. It was removed. Jesus Christ, when Jesus Christ's body uh, was broken, and through him, we have this new way of access to God. And, and the writer of Hebrews begins by saying, look, we have this, this confidence that we have this access to God. Now, the question is, what is this confidence that he's talking about? Because we should note here that he's not saying, okay, because Jesus did this, you should have confidence. And he's not exhorting everybody saying, look, have confidence, just believe. He, he's saying this as, in one sense, an assumption. That's an expectation. He's saying that this is something that you already possess. You have this confidence. So what's this confidence that he's talking about? He's talking about the gospel itself. Jesus Christ in his flesh who became like us and yet was punished for our, our, our sins, uh, who died and, and who rose again. And he has therefore created this new way for us to have access to God. It's an absolutely incredible, incredible promise and, and imagery, one that we can take for granted because we, we hear the stories so often, but just think about that, access to God. You know, there's a lot of places that are restricted to, to normal people, uh, like most of us, uh, that we just can't get in uh, because it's reserved for the people who, who belong. Heaven has got to be the most restricted place because nobody can get there simply by their own effort. Uh, and yet we're told that we have access to God who is in heaven. When I was thinking about that in terms of the significance of, of just having access and, and things that are restricted and, and what it is necessary when we have confidence in somebody who actually belongs, I remembered something that my, my father had told me, not as a we, I'm not going to give a wisdom on that, but a story of his own, uh, uh, of his you know, more recent life. My father lives in, in a, one of the um, gated plantations in, in Hilton Head and has for a number of years. Uh, and apparently his, his, uh, his plantation has one of the top golf courses in the country. But it is a very private course. You can only play if you are uh, somebody who lives on that plantation or you're with somebody who is a member of that plantation. And a few years ago, he told me that they had somebody who was pretty well known, former President Bill Clinton, was vacationing at Hilton Head and he wanted to play the golf course because he'd heard it was a really good course. It's listed in the top five in the country of private courses. And so he called in order to set a tea time, and they told him, I'm sorry, Mr. President, you're not a, you don't live on the plantation. You can't come in. And they thought, oh, well, we got to do something here. And so they began calling some of the residents in this very Republican plantation. <laughs> and one after the other says, I'm not playing golf with that guy. You know, I'm not. Uh, uh. Until finally they got one of the guys who lived on the plantation who had been, you know, in, the, uh, in Reagan's cabinet and said, look, it's just like, we can't not let the president, the former president of the United States play on our golf course. So he took him out and played. But see, even the president, former president of the United States, with all the power and, and everything else that goes along with that, he is restricted unless he knows the right person. And Jesus Christ is that new way that we who have trusted in him, we have access not to a golf course, although I suppose there's golf in heaven, although 
just as a side note, I, was, I said that once in a, in a sermon years and years ago, and I had a man who came up to me angrily. And he was a golfer. I didn't know what I had said to tick him off so much. And he said, you said there's golf in heaven. All right, it was kind of an illusion. Is there lying in heaven? No. Is there cheating in heaven? No. Then there's no golf. Anyway, so... Um, um, so... That has definitely nothing to do with my message. It just came to mind. It's not in my notes. But anyway, we're on the golf theme. But moving back to the message is the, the, the access. Through Jesus Christ, we have access. We have confidence. We possess the confidence, not because we muster it up within us, but because Jesus Christ is and we are trusting in him. And trusting in him, we have confidence because he is our confidence that enables us to access God. And so Jesus Christ is the new way. It's not about religion. It's simply by trusting in Jesus Christ, who is our confidence, who enables us to have access to God. But the writer says that he's not only a new way, he is a, a living way. And he's a living way for two reasons. One is because Jesus Christ is alive. He lived, he died, he rose again, and he ascended into heaven. As the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 7, he's, it's where he lives to make intercession on behalf of us. In other words, he's pleading our case. He's praying for us. He is for us. He is, and so Jesus Christ is very alive. And so it's not just a dead ritual, but it's a living hope. But it is also living in this way because what Jesus Christ has accomplished, this new covenant, this new way, is a new way for us to live our lives. And one of the things that you're going to note here in this passage is that there are three places where, because of what Jesus Christ has done, it says, let us, and then it follows with something that we are invited and encouraged uh, to, to do. Now, before I get to that, I, I do want to point out something else that is in this passage uh, that's a, a principle that's uh, through all of the scripture that we, we see evident here. And it's vitally important that we understand this, uh, not just for as, as Bible students, but in order to experience the Christian life the way that it's intended. If the Bible is to shape our lives and living out the principles of the Bible is vitally important, then this principle that I, I want to share, and we've shared it before, but it, it's important that we embrace it. Because there's this tendency that many people have, and maybe it's a very American, um, you know, uh, efficiency way, where people kind of in their mind say, okay, you know, let's just scoot past all this you know, theology mumbo-jumbo stuff. Just tell me what I need to know. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do. And, and there's something commendable to somebody who wants to do what the Word of God says. But one of the things that we can't ignore is that always in the scripture to live the Christian life, it's not just about doing. God's not just calling us to do certain things, but he's inviting us into communion with him, relationship with him, fellowship with him. And it's through knowing him and being with him that prompts us to obedience that we actually live the way that we're supposed to live. And the principle is this that you're going to see in each of these let us, and there are things that we're invited to do. It, all, all of them are accompanied with some reference back to what Jesus Christ has done. One of the things that we need to recognize is that we don't just do, and, because otherwise we've moved back into the old covenant way. I behaved or maybe I failed to, so therefore we need to have this sacrifice or just you know, plead for mercy. But the way that God has designed things is that we are continually reminded of what Jesus Christ has done, the love of God that is ours, and the privileges that are ours, not because we've earned them or deserve them, but because of the nature of who God is. And they prompt us and they enable us to live lives of obedience. 
We call that around here a lot of times the, the principle of the, you know, the imperative and the indicative, uh, for those of you who are English teachers. Um, there's probably other ways to put it. Uh, the experiential as opposed to the, the foundational uh, might be a, another way that you could put that. But there's this tendency that we have as to thinking that uh, our relationship with God is based upon what we do. What we're, you know, we're told to do things. And if we do certain things, then God is going to bless us. Even when we know better, even when we preach uh, concerts, there's, there's just this instinct. Perhaps it's hardwired in us or hardwired in the fall, this, this religious nature of thinking that we only get what we deserve. And so therefore, we, we read passage and saying, if we do such and such, then God promises to do this. When the biblical principle is the exact opposite, everything that we are called to do is built upon what God has already done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so he therefore says, because Jesus has done this, because God has done this, now go do this. I think we see that principle most vividly in the preface to the Ten Commandments. The preface of the Commandments says, I'm the Lord your God who has delivered you out of slavery. And then he moves into here's how you should live. And we can read that and we read that over and over and over again. And, and we, we see exactly what it says. But here's how I often hear it, and I know many other people do too. I'm the Lord your God. If you live this way, then I will deliver you out of slavery. We invert it as if our performance is the foundation, and then the blessings are the, are the, uh, you know, the, the cherry on top, or uh, they are the, the consequence of our obedience. The scripture over and over and over again says that it is God who was initiate. God expresses his own character in this way. And he blesses and he calls and he has provided for us. And because he's already done those things, now we, having that assurance, are to respond. And then everywhere there's a command, everywhere there's an invitation, it's saying this is an appropriate way to respond to who God is and what God has done for you. That principle was important for us to understand and to examine our own lives um, because if we invert it, we disempower what God is doing through the gospel and through the word that he's given. It's not that you can't accomplish these things. We can do incredible things through self-discipline, but what we cannot do is please God simply by our efforts. But when we are pleased by God and we receive his grace, we are now able to live lives that we enjoy and that honor God at the same time. And we see those here in this new and the, the, the living way. As I mentioned, there are three different things that we're going to see here. And for the sake of time, I'm going to try to uh, uh, do these relatively quickly, although each of them would be a message in themselves. But we see first in verse 22, it's an invitation for us to draw near. In verse 22, uh, we read this. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near to God. In other words, because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, the one who has granted us access, let's take advantage of that access. Let's enjoy that access. Let's come into the presence of God. The door is open to those who belong to him. Do you realize what an incredible thing this is? That we, no matter who we are, are able to access into the presence 
of the living and true God who created everything in the world. It's a reminder to us that our faith and therefore our lives are not just to be lived with some acknowledgement that there is a God and memorial and, 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 and some honor to him, but it's an invitation to experience God's presence, that our, our lives, our faith is to be experienced to experience the presence and power of God on a regular basis. Now, one of the ways that, you know, how, how, do, you, how do we do that? Uh, well, there, there are any number of ways, and we're not limited to that, but some of the ways in specific is what we're doing here and gathering to worship, although it's not limited to when we gather here. Any place that we are able to commune with God and uh, we are able to worship Him, when we acknowledge Him and we, we, we praise Him, that might be prompted when you're out and about, whether you're uh, hiking in the mountains or over at the ocean side, and just that moment that just kind of over, comes over you and says, wow. And, and you recognize this is the handiwork of God. He's the artist who created all of this simply by speaking it into existence. And your mind races, and therefore you're, you're honoring God. God is present with you in, in that moment. When we converse with God through prayer, God is present with us. We are able to experience God in a very real way. And this passage reminds us that God invites us to do that, that our faith is not just ritual, it is personal. And though God is a spirit that we cannot see and we cannot touch, he sees, he touches, he fellowships, and makes his presence known with us as well. And the, and the writer of Hebrews here says that we are to draw near, that we are to not settle for anything less than an experiential faith. No matter how rich your theological knowledge, no matter how disciplined your daily life, don't settle for less. I heard one person share and kind of you know, teaching on this uh, some time back and saying, you know, if somebody gave you a, a brand new, whatever, car of your dreams, you know, you could park it in the garage and come out and admire it once a week and polish it up every once in a while. But a car is designed to be driven. And our faith is designed to be lived. And the writer of Hebrews says, because of what Jesus Christ has done, because he is the new and living way, Let's draw near to God. Let's experience his presence. The second thing that he says is this, is let's hold fast to the confession of our hope in verse 23. And here he is addressing a very significant issue because we live in a world that is tumultuous. Things that we long to see happening, sometimes they seem to get cut off from us. Things that we have had, Things can be taken away from us. And as a result, we can experience either momentary uh, bouts with hopelessness or some people find themselves living under the shadow of hopelessness. And when hopelessness gets too serious and too severe, it actually leads to many other things and can even lead to, to death. It's when people have given up all hope that oftentimes some have said that, you know, the, the, their heart kind of gives way and they... What the writer of Hebrews is telling us here is that Jesus Christ is our hope. He's, he's the new way. He is the promise of God that he has not rejected you. He's the promise of God that you can come into his presence, you can experience him. He's the promise of God of his love. He's the down payment of the promise of God for everything else that God has promised that you need for this life. And he is the guarantee of the hope for the next life, for the, the life that is to come, the one that lasts uh, for all eternity. 
And the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, in Christ we have this hope, a hope for, for tomorrow as well as a hope for today. And, and so he says, hold fast to him. And I looked up the, some definitions on hold fast. I had an idea of what it meant. And fortunately, I was somewhat at least in the right ballpark of it. But he says, to remain tightly secured. In other words, to, just to, to hold tightly to something. I learned that it was apparently a military uh, phrase, it's a term that's used periodically to say kind of bear down and fight through a storm. Now, those of you that were in the Navy or in the Marines or whatever, you can tell me afterwards uh, that whether that's right or not. Uh, but I'm not the one that was wrong. It was the dictionary, uh, if, uh, if it is. So, um, but in short, look that, you know, to, to hold tight, to hold it fast to uh, hope is to have a hope. The, the idea of the hope, the, the promise, is to cling to that and not let go of it, even if people are trying to persuade you otherwise. You're, you're holding fast here. And the writer is inviting us on the basis of the confidence that we can have in Jesus Christ, that we can have hope. Now, before we move on to that, I, there's, there's an interesting statement because he says the confession of hope. Or if you have an NIV, it says the, which I think is clearer, is hold on to the hope that we profess. Because I think that that tells us where the handle is that we're able to hold on to. The hope itself is Jesus Christ. He is the new and living way. He is the hope. He is the one who grants us access. He is, he is the everything there. But when it says the confession of our hope or the hope that we profess, it's reminding us of all of the truths that are part of the gospel message. All of the things that are true about Jesus Christ, who he is, what he has done, what he's accomplished, and what he's promised for us, those are the things that we profess. Those are, those are the, or, you know, those are the confess. It's, it's not the actual, the, the power of the speaking, as some might tell you, that, you know, watch your words because the words actually bring into fruition, or they, they you know, that, 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 uh, that expression of Christianity is, well, I don't know what it is, but it's not Christianity. But the word confession here, we use it in our tradition in another way. You know, some of you, if you look in, you look in the back of some of your Bibles, it, it will have a shorter a version of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Confessions are summaries of the doctrines of the Christian faith, whether it's Westminster or, or some others. They are, are longer versions of creeds. that They take different chapters and they, they explain different points of the faith. The word being used here is in that way. In other words, hold fast to what God has revealed. Hold fast to the truth about that. As we cling to that, they are the handle by which we are able to be reminded about the substance and the person of Jesus Christ. And so the writer of Hebrews here is saying, look, hold on to the hope, but he's saying, hold on to the confession or hold on to the hope that you profess. Hold on to what you believe because what you believe is going to remind you about the person of Jesus Christ who is the one who is the fulfillment of, of that hope. Now, even that may be, uh, be good, but some of us at times, we recognize because of the, the storms of life and things get shaky, it's, it's sometimes it's difficult to hold on, difficult to keep our grip. But I love what the writer of Hebrews here says. He invites us to cling to it and tells us that we need to hold on. But then he says, here's the reason that we need to hold on. He is who has made the promises is faithful. And so he's pointing us back to what Jesus Christ has done to be faithful and the fact that Jesus Christ is continuing to be faithful and is holding on to us even now. And the imagery that the writer here is sort of like a parent who is in a park or a, crowd, a crowded park or maybe a parking lot and is walking with their, their young child, maybe three or four years old. The child is old enough to walk but not old enough to 
kind of go on their own and when it's dangerous or, or, or uh, around. And, and so the parent would say, hold my hand, right? Hold tight. And the child, if it's dangerous, is going to hold as tight as they can. But it doesn't really matter how strong the child is because the currents of everything are, are, uh, of life are even stronger. The reason the child is secure is not with the intensity and the ability that they have to hold on. It's because of the, the strength of the, the, the father or the mother are holding on to their hand at the same time while they're holding on. And so this invitation to us is look, cling to what we know to be true about Jesus Christ because it reminds us of him so that we're able to cling to Jesus Christ and he is our hope. So by clinging to him, we have that hope, but we're able to do that even when we feel weak because we're reminded that he is holding us as well. And because he has us, he's never, nobody's going to be able to take us from him. And that is our hope. And then the last thing that the writer of Hebrews tells us that we ought to consider here is, 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 is that, well, we need to, he said, let us consider one another. In verses 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so what the writer of Hebrews here is touching on is the absolute necessity of living our lives in community. We were not designed to live alone. The idea of a Lone Ranger Christianity doesn't really exist, even though it's very prevalent in the American culture. George Barna, in 2005, wrote a book that he titled Revolution. And the thesis of his book was that one can be a, a Christ-loving, Bible-believing, God-exalting Christian without any particular connection to a local church. And he's not talking about those who are unable to be connected because of the circumstances of life. You know, health issues keep them from being able to participate in the body, or they live in a remote geographical area, uh, where there is no Bible-believing church or maybe even someplace overseas where they're the only Christian that they know of within, you know, hundreds of miles uh, in those circumstances, which would probably hinder somebody from participating in the body. But the premise that he was dealing with is that there, uh, he was promoting and saying that there's a large and growing number of people who profess to love Jesus Christ, and the evidence seems to suggest that they do love Jesus Christ. And yet, for whatever the reasons, they've decided that they're going to go it alone, that they are better off if they live their lives uh, and live out their faith um, without being in communion with other believers. But the reality is, we are designed and we need community. And when I was thinking about this, I was thinking, I thought about um, something that C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The, the Four Loves, that illustrates the, the principle of the need of community. So you've heard this before. If you've done our discovery class, we have kind of a snippet of, of this uh, there that you have read, or if you're in the class now, you will read in, in a few weeks. But what Lewis talks about, the, a circle of friends that he would meet with on a regular basis, which included uh, Charles Williams and J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, who he refers to as, as Ronald. Uh, and Charles Williams died. And so... The only one, two of the, the group left now, it's Tolkien and Lewis, which would itself be a fascinating, uh, you know, conversation to, to listen into. But here's what Lewis writes. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. 
by myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically um, Ronald joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. Hence, true friendship is the least jealous of loves. Two friends delight to be joined by a third and three by a fourth. We possess each friend, not less, but more as the number of those with whom we share, uh, share him increases. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven. For every soul seeing him in her own way communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That says an old author, it is why the seraphim in Isaiah's vision are crying, holy, holy, holy to one another. The more we thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall all have. And what Lewis is reflecting there, again, is this, is that in community, you are able to see more of other people's reactions, more of other people's personalities. Each of us in our relationship, we bring something out in the other person. We experience something. But every other person experiences not only the common things, but something distinct. And so if you are part of a group of three people, you not only have the experience of what you see, but you are able to experience what you see as they're interacting with the other person. And Lewis is touching on the reality that God has designed us for community. And that may not be a very American thing because we have a culture that is built on rugged individualism. And we, we like the idea of the Lone Ranger, people that did it their own way, people that go their own way. And when that begins to creep into the Christianity, we may admire these people, but the reality is that they are living in, in quite danger. When we choose this path, we are living in danger as well. We're designed to be living out in community. And so the writer of Hebrews says, look, because of what Jesus has done, he didn't just save individuals who just kind of scattered throughout the earth. He's saved a body that is being knit together in order to function together, to relate to one another, to be connected, to find their purpose in relationship to everybody else, to, to find everything more about themselves lived out in the community. And so he says, so, so what we need to do, because Jesus has done that, let's not neglect gathering together. Let's come together with this intent, knowing that we need other people to encourage us at times to do the things that we know that we ought to do, to remind us of how we have been loved and therefore we are able to love even when we don't feel like loving whoever the person may be. The writer of Hebrews is saying, let us come together. Let's encourage one another. Let's serve one another. And he does so because this is the way that we are designed. These three things touch upon things that uh, touch upon issues that we all recognize that are needed in our lives. We need friends, we need others. We need hope. And we need to recognize that we are not alone, but that we are created to have fellowship with God, who has not just created us and then wound us up and set us in motion, and every once in a while when we topple over, he you know, picks us back up, and, but who has made a way, a new and living way that we are able to enter into his presence, find his constant nurturing, share that with one another, and live our lives in hope.
He's done that through the new and living way. Who is our Savior in Jesus Christ. Father, we give thanks to you this day for this word, these instructions, the encouragement, but ultimately for Christ. And I pray that as a people that we would not lose sight of who he is and what he has done, that he would more and more become the object of our affection. But because of who he is and what he has done, Lord, let us live our lives in a way that bring us, enable us to flourish as you have designed us to, which is a life, lives that are lived out with you in community with one another, in focus on the hope that can never be taken, spoil, or perish. And that is Christ Jesus. Lord, root us and enable us to flourish to your glory and for our joy in Christ. Amen.